Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation with scholar Adrian Zenz on October 1st, 2020. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Delay, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese, the communications officer of the International Campaign for Tibet. If you've been following the news from inside Tibet over the past few days, you've almost certainly heard of our guest for today's program. His new report, Xinjiang's System of Militarized Vocational Training Comes to Tibet, exposed a mass coercive labor program in the Tibet Autonomous Region that enlisted more than half a million Tibetans in just a few months. In response to his report, 63 parliamentarians from 16 countries demanded that their governments take action against China, including by demanding reciprocal access to Tibet. Reuters also published an exclusive story about the report, and our guest wrote an op-ed for the New York Times to expound on his findings. Today, he'll share those findings with you, so it's my pleasure to introduce him to you now. Our guest is a senior fellow in China Studies at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation here in Washington, D.C., and supervises PhD students at the European School of Culture and Theology in Germany. He's an advisor on ethnic minority policies for the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, and he's the author of the text, Tibetanists Under Threat. Please join me as I welcome our guest for the hour, Professor Adrian Zenz. Adrian, welcome and thank you for being here on Tibet Talks. Well, thank you very much for having me. It is my pleasure to be a part of this event and to present on my latest findings. Thank you, and we're very much looking forward to the conversation as well. I'd like to bring in the moderator for today's discussion. He's the president of the International Campaign for Tibet, and like Adrian, he's also an advisor to the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. Please welcome Matteo Makachi. Thank you, Ashwin. Thank you very much for the introduction and thank you most of all to Adrian for joining us today for this uh, very timely, and I believe uh, what will result in a very interesting conversation for our viewers who, have, who pay a lot of attention to what's happening to the people of Tibet. And, um, we know at the International Campaign for Tibet, Adrian, we have known him for a number of years, you know, for his research on Tibet, uh, which uh, started many years ago, and actually, and he will talk later also about that. But we wanted to bring him, him today to really uh, have a you know, deeper conversation and uh, get some questions from the audience about his latest report. Uh, as Ashwin mentioned, the report uh, got quite a bit of coverage in the media, which is uh, naturally very important to uh, make public opinion aware of the situation in Tibet. And so we would like to begin uh, the conversation, giving an opportunity to Adrian to really present the findings of the report for around 10 minutes, and then uh, we'll proceed from there. Also, Buchun Tsering will join us for some uh, uh, follow-up questions, and then we'll open to the to the audience for additional uh, questions if they come. So, Adrian, welcome again, and please go ahead with your presentation. 
Well, Matteo, thank you very much indeed for having me. And it is my uh, pleasure to uh, present on the latest findings that I came across um, just quite recently, really, and which were published about two weeks ago. Uh, without much further ado, I will start to explain that my latest research focuses on what China refers to as the Tibet Autonomous Region, or TAR. Uh, this region has had a small-scale training program for rural surplus laborers and a related employment initiative for pastoralists and farmers for several years, uh, certainly starting in the uh, mid or early 2000s. From 2012, the Chamdo region in the TAR initiated a quote-unquote military-style training for surplus labor force transfer for pastoral and agricultural reasons. The scheme was formally established in the region's five-year plan from 2016 to 20, with the goal of training 65,000 laborers in Chamdo under this policy, and that included urban unemployed persons. In March 2019, the TAR then unbeknownst to many of us actually, and sort of fairly quietly, I would say, issued a key new policy document called the Farmer and Pastoralist Training and Labor Transfer Action Plan. Besides being based on military drill and militarized management, the training process was to include work discipline, Chinese language, lectures on Chinese law and work ethics with the aim to enhance laborers' sense of discipline to comply with national laws and regulations. Increasingly, the labor transfers are to follow the so-called order-oriented method by which the job is arranged first based on companies' needs, it's also called menu style, so meaning companies can put in a request, and then the local nomads and farmers are trained based on the pre-arranged job placement. This model is very similar to uh, what's taking place in Xinjiang. In 2020, the TAR then introduced a related region-wide labor transfer policy that established mechanisms and target quotas for the transfer of trained rural surplus laborers, both within the TAR, 55,000 people was the target for 2020, and to other parts of China with a target figure of 5,000. Uh, and many more to be retrained and employed uh, more locally. In the first seven months of 2020, according to government statistics, the TAR trained 543,000 rural surplus laborers under this militarized vocational training and labor transfer scheme. Of these, just under 50,000 were transferred to other parts of the TAR and over 3,000 to other parts of China. Each Tibetan prefecture and county is assigned a specific transfer quota to be achieved. By the end of 2020, the transfer scheme must cover the entire region. Job placements include work in road construction, cleaning, mining, cooking, driving, building, restaurant services, security jobs, beauty-related work, etc. Workers, workers are transferred to their destinations in a centralized group style or, quote, point-to-point, -point, unquote, fashion. The similarities to Xinjiang's coercive training scheme are many. Both have the same target group, namely rural surplus laborers, a high-powered focus on mobilizing a reticent minority group, 
to change the traditional livelihood mode. The central terminology employed for the labor transfer is identical. To quote, unified matching, unified organizing, unified management, unified sending off. Both schemes employ military drill and closed military-style training management. There are some photos that um, can be blended in at this stage about the military-style training. This military-style training management is designed to produce discipline and obedience. Both Tibet and Xinjiang emphasize the need to transform laborers' thinking and identity and to reform their backwardness, quote unquote. Both teach law in Chinese, both aim to weaken the perceived negative influence of religion. Uh, here on the photos you see, for example, uh, Tibetans learning to paint um, in military drill, in military fatigues. Uh, on the next photos, if you keep going, um, you will see mil military drill. And this is a picture of, if you go back to the ladies, yes, uh, this is a group of uh, Tibetans learning to become uh, servers or waitresses in a restaurant, again, in military fatigues. Not all of the photos of training show Tibetans in military fatigues, but it's just particularly notable, especially these ladies learning to become waiters in a restaurant. I mean, <laughs> anyway, it just shows the military style management. This picture is from 2020. Some of the previous pictures were from 2016 in Chamdo. Both Xinjiang and Tibet use the scheme to weaken the perceived negative influence of religion. They prescribe detailed quotas and put great pressure on officials to achieve the targets. For the TER's labor transfer scheme, there's so far no evidence of accompanying cadres of, or security personnel, of cadres stationed in factories or workers being kept in securitized environments. Uh, there's also currently no evidence of TR labor training or transfer schemes being directly linked to extrajudicial internment, although there is extrajudicial internment um, in Tibet of a more targeted nature, apparently. This is still subject to further research, really. The Training and Labor Transfer Action Plan establishes strict administrative procedures, mandates the establishment of dedicated workgroups, as well as the involvement of top leadership cadres to, quote, ensure that the target tasks are completed on schedule, unquote. Each administrative level is to pass the pressure to the next lower levels. Local government units are, quote, establish a task progress list and those who lag behind the work schedule are to be reported and to be held accountable, unquote. This is complemented by a system of strict rewards and punishments, and they are Achievements are directly weighed in the cadre's assessment scores, which are annually compiled. As with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, overcoming Tibetans' resistance to labor transfer is an integral part of the mechanism. Rural laborers are to be transformed from, quote, being unwilling to move, unquote, to becoming willing to participate, a process that requires, quote, diluting the negative influence of religion, unquote. Coercive elements play an important role during the recruitment process. Village-based work teams, an intrusive social control mechanism pioneered by Tibet's former party secretary, Chen Chuenguo, who governed the region from 2011 to 2016, go from door to door to help transform the thinking and views of poor households. These processes overlap to a high degree with those found in Xinjiang. As in Xinjiang, poverty alleviation work in the the TAR is tightly linked to social control mechanisms 
and many aspects of the security apparatus and police state. In a system where the transition between securitization and poverty alleviation is seamless, there's no telling where coercion stops and where genuinely local agency begins. A particularly concerning aspect of the Training and Labor Transfer Action Plan, the key document for March 2019, is the directive to promote a, quote, poverty alleviation industry, unquote, scheme, by which local nomads and farmers are asked to hand over their land and herds to large-scale state-run cooperatives or collectives. Nomads become shareholders as they convert their usage rights into shares and become wage laborers. The scheme harks back to the forced collectivization era of the 1950s, broadly speaking. In Nakchu, this is referred to as the one township, one cooperative, one village, one cooperative scheme, indicating how universal the coverage is supposed to be. One account describes the land transfer as leading Tibetans to put down the whip, walk out of the pasture, and enter the labor market. And really, one could have published in a whole separate research paper just on this, this aspect, on this, this, this um, land and a transfer of land and herds and turning as a, as a way, of course, to get the nomads and farmers to become wage laborers. In my opinion, that's, that's a huge deal. And I was frankly shocked to have uncovered it. And I actually um, waited till sort of the week before publication, whether I would include it in my report or not, because I was still, I was still in, in disbelief about some of it. And I was still looking at the evidence and, and careful, you know, wanting to be careful. And is, is this real? And yes, I, I, bear, I, was, I was just, I, I was just in disbelief really about it. So that's another whole big deal, but it fits into, into the scheme. And of course my research, by that time I'd 90% I'd written the piece on the military's vocational training. So I'm not, so in the future one can, this, this is basically like opening up a can of worms about, about everything that's happening in the region, many of which we had a very limited, if any understanding about. So my last, couple of sentences here are uh, really about the fact that it's concerning to see that Xi Jinping's uh, ethnic minority policy approach is increasingly characterized by a logic of securitization and militarization. Uh, to transform minority minds, behaviors, and livelihoods, it's powered by detailed digital databases, surveillance systems, and military-style vocational trainings. In my view, these new mechanisms are highly intrusive and they leave no one out. There's no more hiding or running from the government schemes. And uh, in my New York Times opinion piece, I, I really situate the new findings about the training scheme uh, in the context of China's wider uh, ethnic policy approach over the last 30 years and Xi Jinping's latest strategies. Overall, there's significant cause for concern that these programs are bringing about long-term and irreversible changes in Tibetan livelihoods that are accompanied by a loss of tradition, culture, and a substantial increase in government control over their lives. And with that, I hand it back to Matteo. Yes. Thank you very much, Adrian. Uh, I think this um, was very enlightening. I think you were able to summarize the finding of the report uh, in a very concise way for our viewers. So I'm really, really happy that you have been able to do that. I, I just want to follow up before bringing uh, in also Bushung for some other question on a couple of issues. Um, 
actually yesterday there was a hearing by the Congressional Executive Commission on China, specifically on Tibet, and uh, you know some of the findings of your report were also analyzed. Um, your report received, as we mentioned, media coverage, but there was also a parliamentary initiative, which for us, uh, you know, we are an advocacy organization. It is important to make sure that the findings that come out of research from Tibet, they can result also in concrete political action to try to do something about the problems that are covered. So the International Parliamentary Alliance on China came out with a statement which is asking for unfettered access to Tibet, which is asking also the United Nations to establish a special rapporteur that could look into the issue of forced labor, not only in Tibet, naturally in, in Xinjiang and other places, and to really uh, you know, dedicate more resources to try to find out what's the reality in, in Tibet. Um, you have mentioned that uh, the, the beginning of this program started in 2012. And as you also mentioned, from 2011, there was a new party secretary in the Tibet Autonomous Region, uh, who was then moved to Xinjiang. Would you like to elaborate a little bit about you know, the policies of you know, Chen Kuanguo, both in Tibet, in Xinjiang, and maybe now coming back to Tibet? Yes, yes. Um, the similarities between Tibet and Xinjiang are, are, as you imply, strongly linked to Chen Quanguo, who governed Tibet for five years, then moved to Xinjiang in August 2016 within the space of 12 months. And I have published on this with the Jamestown Foundation in an article called Chen Quanguo, Beijing Strongman in Tibet and Xinjiang. Within 12 months, he implemented in Xinjiang almost everything he had done in Tibet in five years in terms of police recruitment, uh, linked households, uh, village work teams, cadres staying with families, very intrusive social control mechanisms, recruiting police per capita, establishing the so-called um, convenience police stations, which is part of an elaborate surveillance systems, uh, tens of thousands of surveillance cameras at key points, databases powering the whole system, a surveillance system that is uh, seamlessly interlinked, of course, with governance mechanisms, such as delivering services, um, keeping tabs on people, and now labor transfer. What you say is very interesting, of course. Yes, in 2012, Chamdo, the Chamdo region started demilitarized vocational training. Be very interesting to dig deeper and see if somehow, in some way, one could, if this was just a coincidence, or if one can link uh, Chen Chuan Guo to that. He came on in November 2011. I think the village work teams were rolled out. I'd have to check. I have this in one of my publications. They were rolled out quite immediately afterwards, actually. So um, he, he did introduce some of these uh, new policies fairly quickly, certainly in Xinjiang. In Xinjiang, he hit the ground running, which is why I established a theory that uh, what happened in Xinjiang everything, including not the police state, but then the internment campaign, the mass internment was actually pre-planned, possibly in early 2016. And when he then was transferred, he hit the ground running. And so these uh, similarities are very important. And now for the first time, we have an, an indication that the general bigger scheme, the large scheme of vocational training and labor transfer is being re-imported in a sense to Tibet using, of course, 
benefiting from having the existing structures and based on an upscaling, it appears to be an upscaling of the Chando uh, uh, example. So we have kind of like a dual import. It's both an expansion of the Chando, uh, the Chando model, but it's also, you know, the, the labor transfer language of laborers being transferred to other parts of China. The language is almost one-to-one -one from Xinjiang. So uh, I now invite uh, Buchun Sering, ICT's vice president, to come and join us. Here he is. And I just want to leave you, uh, you know, to Buchung, I just want to point out, um, as you were talking about 2012, as you may recall, 2012 was, was also the year in which the number of self-immolations was higher in Tibet. There were a couple of months where there were dozens of self-immolations. And actually, after a little bit in, in a specific region of Tibet, some regulations introducing the concept of collective punishment for relatives and communities of self-immolators self uh, was introduced. And I think if I'm, if, not, if I'm not wrong, it was around 2012, 2013. So that could be another indication of you know, this general crackdown that took place after Chen Chengguo um, was in Tibet. But I'll leave that to you for, you know, for further exploration and consideration. And I give the floor now to, to Bushu. Thank, thank you, Matthew. Uh, I should first of all begin by saying I'm a little bit ashamed at Adrian wearing a Tibetan dress and I'm in a uh, <laughs> non-Tibetan dress, so to say. But I think, I think it shows that uh, you're Adrian, your involvement with Tibet is not at the professional level alone, but also your personal uh, interest in the Tibetan people and their uh, culture. Uh, so I think I'll pick up on what Matteo said just now, and I wanted to raise two issues with you. First, uh, on your research methodology, and then the second on a substantive issue about bilingual education. Uh, first, mm -hmm. on the uh, research methodology of the issue, I think Matthew mentioned about self-immolations in Tibet. You wrote about uh, Chinese recruitment policy of Tibet and, and how this is somehow had an impact on the self-immolation. Can you expand on that if my understanding is not wrong? And how your methodology led you to that conclusion? I started my, my research um, in, in Qinghai, um, under reasons, but also uh, Kham region. And um, I was uh, very closely paying attention to the issue of public recruitment. Um, as you mentioned, it was originally related to bilingual education, which started out my research. But um, I analyzed public recruitment in different, in all different Tibetan regions of China. And I found uh, several correlations. For example, I found a strong increase overall in public recruitment figures, uh, both in Qinghai and in the TAR. And I found that um, the single largest factor driving increased recruitments was recruitment related to security. Uh, police, judiciary, um, the whole justice system, the court system, the prison system. Many of these jobs also requiring Tibetan language skills. And um, there was, if you, I, if you plot, if you plot the increase of these police, the security and police-related recruitments against the number of self-immolations, like a statistic of self-immolations, as far as we know them, 
there was a, a sort of a very interesting correlation between the two. Uh, in the year 2012, for example, as Matteo indicated, there was an unprecedented, there was a peak in 2011 or 12, there was a real peak in self-immolations. There was also a peak in uh, the recruitments of uh, police and, 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 and other security related. 2011, the end of 2011, of course, is also the year when Chen Xuengo was brought into Tibet. And I wonder if there's, a, if there's another correlation. And of course, then in 2012, you saw a strong buildup of security forces. And that, of course, coincided with the year where Xi Jinping was brought on board. It was a leadership transition year. And leadership transition years are, of course, also considered very politically sensitive. Uh, so I think you had a whole bundle of factors involved. And I just looked up that, in fact, Chen Chuengo introduced these very intrusive village work teams where cadres are sent into villages to really spy on people and really achieve an unprecedented level of detail and information. Later on in Xinjiang, the same scheme was used to identify people to put, who to put into internment camps. This was introduced in November 2011, almost exactly, almost immediately after Chen Chuengo started in the TAR. Um, and again, Actually, this gives me a new idea. One could look at how did Chen Chuengua start out in Tibet? Did he hit the ground running there as well? Was this pre-planned too? Was this sparked by self-immolations? Was this sparked by a new security consideration? So this guy has like been shifted around at key times. And, and, and this is uh, just one of these strands that links some of these uh, securitization strategies together. Thank you. That's very interesting, I think, for us to really understand the self-emulation and the Chinese uh, response to that from a different perspective. Uh, coming to bilingual education, uh, the issue is also a hot topic right now because of what has happening with the Mongol people under China. Uh, there have been protests there where the Chinese authorities have been mandating uh, Mandarin as the medium of instruction. We also hear that this, a similar policy is being applied or will be applied soon in Tibetan schools too. Uh, but way back, seven years back, you wrote about the education system in Amdo area, in Qinghai. And at that time, you dealt with this issue of bilingual education. What other forces that are making the Tibetans either to choose Tibetan as their medium or not to choose the Tibetan medium, and how this uh, state organs are either encouraging people to study Tibetan or by discouraging people through other factors not to study Tibetan. So based on that, given current situation, what do you see uh, is uh, China's education policy in terms of bilingual education for the Tibetan people? Very good question. Uh, how many hours do I have to respond? No, oh. just kidding. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing topic. Qinghai, the, the Amdo Qinghai regions uh, really uh, played a very unique role. Uh, to some extent also uh, the Amdo region in Sichuan and in Gansu and um, uh, Gaza region in Sichuan. These, these were sort of at the forefront of a, uh, a movement of Tibetanization of Tibetan education. It started especially in the 90s and really culminated in the 2000s. Um, and what happened is that from primary school, but then into secondary and tertiary education, there was a, 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 like a bottom-up initiative, a very, um, very successful uh, to Tibetanize Tibetan education, to, to have like a complete Tibetan medium education where almost virtually all subjects, except for foreign languages, including Chinese are taught in Tibetan. This is a model one, and China is called model one. 
the Model 1 really peaked in the late 2000s and then early 2010s. And in 2010, there was the first initiative by Qinghai province to cut it back and shift to Model 2, where Chinese is the main language of education and all uh, uh, subjects except for the Tibetan language are taught in Chinese. But there were demonstrations against this. There was an uprising against this. There was an argument against it that said, well, this is not going to be successful. Successful education in Tibetan regions uh, to give Tibetans better education, better successful educational outcomes and jobs is actually Model 1, Tibetan as the medium of instruction. And interestingly, according to my uh, uh, research, this prevailed in uh, many Amdo regions in the 2010s, into the mid-2010s, into even 2016-17, and there was one was really wondering how long is this going to survive. In Mongolia, in Inner Mongolia, which you mentioned, we had a similar situation, which for a, a long time after the, the relative freedoms of Deng Xiaoping in the late 80s and then early 90s, there was a revival of Mongolian language education. Uh, Mongolian was the main language of instruction. Now, under Xi Jinping, under the second half of Xi Jinping, uh, with you know the, some of the new policies also, some of the political changes that we saw uh, in, in late 2017, we are seeing a reversal of this policy across the board. There were initial signs, there were initial regions. The TAR, the Tibet Autonomous Region, was the first one to see the negative decline already in the early 2000s, very early on language in the TER was a political subject. And therefore, if, if you were a Tibetan studies expert, you could look at Tibetan regions in China in the 2010s and come to two completely different conclusions. You could look at the TAR and come to a very negative assessment of the state of Tibetan education. Or, like myself, you could look at especially Amdo and some of the Kham regions, and you could come to a very positive assessment of Tibetan education. But now we are seeing the Sinicization, a rollback of Tibetan education, of shifting to Model 2, where Tibetan is no longer a, a medium of instruction, but is single, almost like a foreign language subject. A rollback of that, that's really accelerating. And I think there are Chinese documents that speak about the promoting the Chinese language and minority education that were quoted by one of the high officials the Chinese officials who visited Inner Mongolia and are now being pushed in Inner Mongolia. And it's, it's that, that that the minorities are resisting, that Inner Mongolians are protesting on the street, that Tashi Wangchuk, you know, the Tibetan language activist, that is in 2015, that's the one thing in Ulchul uh, in, in southern Qinghai, what he was protesting against, against this rollback, against this, this fundamental change. Thank you. I think your explanation again is topical because as we speak, uh, our Beijing-based uh, Western commentator Robert Kuhn, I think that's his name, has written about uh, how China is preserving Tibetan language in the schools, etc., not uh, being able to uh, understand how the policy decisions are being made that will affect the study of Tibetan form now and for the future. And just recently, some uh, China-based social media influencers were taken on a tour of Tibet, and one of their uh, destination was a school in Sakya. And there, they were shown some textbooks in Tibetans, and these people started propagating the myth that those who say that Tibetan language is uh, facing the threat in Tibet 
independent schools are wrong because Tibetan is being taught, but they don't understand this explanation that you gave about how policy-wise and in terms of society, there is this uh, trend towards uh, a negative impact on Tibetan education. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, I now hand you back, Matthew, are you or are we going to the questions? Uh, I, I mentioned, yes, we, we will go to the questions uh, uh, so we can call on Ashwin to come uh, on the screen. But before doing that, I just wanted to, um, to mention that we have been following uh, the proceedings of the 7th Tibet World Forum. It was, was held recently in Beijing and was presided by uh, Xi Jinping. And uh, I think we need to always keep in mind if there is and what is the correlation between the official statements, the official policy, which is laid out and presented by any government, not only the Chinese government, and the reality on the ground. And I think this recent research, but also the other aspect that you have mentioned, Adrian, worryingly point to the conclusion that the official policy, the official statements of trying to control, assimilate, integrate, quote unquote, <clears throat> Tibetans into the Chinese socialist society is also, is also resulting in concrete actions on the ground which affect the livelihood of, uh, you know, millions of uh, Tibetans who for, you know, some time in the period, even if during a very, you know, living in a, in a, in a authoritarian state, naturally they do not enjoy the same rights that we enjoy. We know that also, you know, the, the Han Chinese people also live under that regime, but I think it's fair to say that, you know, Tibetans, Uyghurs, and people who belong to a different ethnicity, they are subject to either, even more intrusive policies. And unfortunately, it looks like uh, that those policies, those hardline announcements are become a reality. So th that I think is something that for our viewers, uh, the people who care about the preservation of Tibetan culture and identity, uh, I think this is a moment in which we need to, to act. We need to try to, uh, to push back against these, uh, these actions. Ashwin, if there are questions or comments from our audience, and then Adrian, if you want to add something else, you're welcome to do so. Yeah, thank you, Matteo, and uh, thank all three of you for a really excellent uh, conversation. Um, we are getting quite a few questions coming in, so I'd like to uh, share a few of those with you now. And I'll try to share them in the order that we received them. Uh, first received a question from someone named Joy Blakesley, who said that she couldn't join online to actually watch this, but she emailed us a question ahead of time. And her question is, and uh, she would like to know how many labor camps there are and where they're located. Thanks so much. Um, Adrian, do you uh, have a response to that? The nature of the training, the nature, when you use the word labor camp, and I noticed that quite a few newspapers who printed my research said 500,000 Tibetans in labor camps. Now, I disagree with this headline because uh, I'm a bit conservative when it comes to research. And I have not found, I would not like to use the term labor camp because we don't have enough information. We have evidence and the government itself has said that over half a million Tibetans have been trained in militarized vocational training and are then placed into labor placements in Chinese factories mostly. 
the nature of the facilities where this militarized training takes place. And this training only takes place for maybe 30, 15 days, 30 days, or 60 days. I don't think there's evidence that the training takes longer than 60 days. And after that, they work in factories, uh, which may or may not be securitized. Uh, apparently, according to the Chamdo region uh, and other evidence, there are so-called training bases. Uh, that's a term you find throughout China, also in Xinjiang, training bases, where the training apparently takes place. Of course, it, sometimes the training takes place with the company, and they, they train where they, where they end up working. Um, in other cases, there is a system of vocational schools, public vocational institutions that perform training, and there are different types of training. This is a complex situation that requires further research. I think the information we have on this is quite limited. I personally would not call blatant uh, sort of um, call this labor camps. Of course, in my research, I do look in detail at one particular facility with satellite photos. There are clear indications of securitization that raise a lot of red flags. This is a, a topic for further research. Thank you for, for clarifying that, Adrian, because as, uh, as an advocacy organization at ICT, we want to make sure that the information you know, provided to gather government officials you know, reflects the reality, because that is the best way to affect change. And you know, there may be a tendency in a climate which is very tense, and there is a lot of anger against you know, China's policies to try to inflate also our, you know, conclusions or the argument that we use, but I think it's very important that we give this message out to the people who are working, you know, the activists out there to look at your report, look at the findings and use that language as they do their advocacy or they try to spread information uh, among other people. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, moving on now, we have a question through Facebook from Nicola Mahe Richter, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing any of those names, but uh, first the comment is, thank you so much for your insights, Adrian Zenz. Very well illustrated the strategic, manipulative, and military operations by the CCP. And the question is, why do you think that the United Nations and Amnesty International are not having bigger public relations and actual impact on supporting Tibet and bringing to the attention of the world what the CCP is doing to Tibetans? So kind of a question about the international response. There is an increasing amount of very good material and now even books out about China's global influence operations. And China has been learning, and now for several decades, they have been strategically working on influencing international multilateral institutions, especially the United Nations, uh, also institutions like the World Health Organization, etc., backing them with their own people uh, or making them financially or otherwise uh, dependent, creating influence. And uh, this influence also um, exerts through other countries, right? So uh, multilateral bodies like the UN, uh, they work by having about 200 or however many countries uh, who then uh, get to vote on things. And if China can influence a good number of these uh, 180 or 200 countries, they can succeed in manipulating outcomes. China even now has a seat on the UN Human Rights Council. On the UN Human Rights Council, China is actively seeking to redefine the definition of human rights at the UN, arguing 
in, in the tradition of moral relativism that there is not just one absolute Western definition of universal human rights. No, no, there's other definitions. And the Chinese one is about economic rights, the right to economic development, not the right for personal individual freedom, etc. So that is the short answer to a very complex and very, very unfortunate and very grievous situation. Great, thank you for that. Uh, we have another question here, uh, also from Facebook, I believe, and this is from Lotsa Hawk. And the question is, do you see or have you heard of support for the Tibetan people among the younger Chinese college-age students or young Chinese travelers to Tibet? Do you think there are ways to facilitate that type of support in young Chinese people in China and within the United States and Canada and you know, other countries as well? The Chinese Communist Party learned from Tiananmen Square, and after that, they embarked on a very, very focused and concerted effort to influence and capture the young minds of young college students, especially, because the college students were the ones who were on Tiananmen Square and wanted change in democracy. The Chinese Communist Party has also perceived the influence of Western thought and of Western ideology, including democracy, human rights, etc., and has mounted a very targeted systematic campaign against it. Both of these campaigns are bearing a lot of fruit, and you will notice that a lot of especially young Chinese uh, students, etc., are have very, very ardent mindsets when it comes to Tibetans, Uyghurs, uh, America, the West, uh, etc., individual freedom, Westernization, national, etc. They're very nationalist. I don't want to blatantly speak against them. I just want to factually describe a situation. I don't advocate discriminating against them, but um, the young generation, others have said, they're very nationalist, very nationalist, and easily, easily influenced by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, there is a small number who would be amenable to support human rights and the rights of Tibetans and Uyghurs, but I think the number is very limited. Uh, some of them might be found abroad. Uh, but generally, this is actually a very big problem, and the young generation now is more nationalist and tougher on the minorities than the older generations in China. Just like the younger diplomats are more the wolf warrior types, you know, who advocate a tough diplomacy to other countries, whereas the older diplomats are the more tempered ones, the more cautious ones, less belligerent. Uh, this is a, a very, very, very worrying development. Yes, absolutely. Very, very harrowing thought. Um, we have a question from Tandrin Luang, and the question is, is she the absolute power in China, or is there inner turmoil among elite CCP lingering on Xi's neck? Um, it's a question about internal uh, party politics. Lingering on Xi's neck. Uh, you'd, have, you'd best ask himself that question, but if uh, from what I hear and see and read, and I'm not claiming to be a, a, a particular expert on that particular question. Uh, the answer is yes or no. The answer is yes, she has concentrated a ton of power and support, and he's, he remains very popular with a lot of the wider population. But there are some manifest indications that he has um, made a number of enemies in his own ranks, especially some of the higher or the older party ranks. And so um, she is and, and a lot of the purges, there's a lot of ongoing purges, especially in the security apparatus. 
So I think if you compare Xi and Stalin, you know, Stalin who became increasingly obsessed and obnoxious and was cutting off people right, left and around him and trusting nobody, uh, we may be seeing some of that. And yes, I think there are those indications, but it's somewhat hard to tell and it's unclear what the ramifications of that are going to be. Thank you. Um, more questions keep uh, coming in here. Um, this is one, I'll, I'm going to share this with you. I don't know if you'll be able to uh, comment much on it, but it's a question from Tenzin Nodok. And the question is, uh, at the moment, the two largest democratic nations, the U.S. and India, uh, have many mutual interests, including resolving the issue of Tibet and security on the Indo-Tibetan border and in the South China Sea. Do you think we should put effort into increasing US, the U.S.-India bilateral um, relationships? I believe yes. I believe it is uh, unfortunately very necessary to contain Chinese influence, to do something about it in peaceful ways, to be wise, to form alliances that counter CCP influence on different levels. Uh, it's already happening. There is a rapprochement uh, between India and the United States through the so-called Quad. Quad re refers, refers to four countries, Japan, Australia, India, and the United States. And that's already happening. And uh, of course, China's actions have been pushing India towards that. And I believe it is, it's necessary both for us and for the Chinese people actually, to constructively counter Chinese influences, we're not going to be pushovers. This is the this is the line, this is the boundary, and let's respect each other and don't go any further. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. Um, another question from uh, also again from uh, Lotzahawk, and uh, this question is: Have we seen another reduction in refugees leaving Tibet for Dharamsala and other parts of India? since the institution of these, um, use the term re-education or training camps, I, I know you said it's not uh, accurate to call it a, call them camps, let's say the program uh, that your report exposed, um, is escape impossible right now for Tibetans? Well, I mean, my logical expectation would be that with the inception of these very detailed and micromanaged uh, programs, it would be much, much, much harder, far harder than in the past for Tibetans to leave and to escape illegally, which of course in most cases would be illegal. You know, both with the border patrols and with the digital database, they're keeping tabs on people. They know where people are going with surveillance cameras. I, ex I would expect it, this, this flow to decrease no matter what the Tibetans want. At the same time, I'm, I'm not an expert on those numbers. Uh, people like Matteo Mekachi and others uh, in the exile community would be better placed to, uh, give, to provide statistics. Actually, Buchung would know more than I do, but I can say uh, that over the last few years, there has been a huge reduction in the number of refugees coming. Basically, the main route has always been through Nepal. Yeah. And uh, I think last year it was, you know, a few dozens. And, you know, until a few years ago, it used to be a few thousand a year that would come across uh, the border. And uh, you can look at that also uh, by watching the relationship between China and Nepal and the politics that has been, you know, taking place there with, uh, you know, growing influence of China in Nepal, uh, greater cooperation among the countries. And when, you know, there is cooperation with China in neighboring countries, 
it's always about security. So the the sealing of the border between uh, Nepal and China has been a result, and basically Tibetans are are trapped in Tibet. And, uh, and it was mentioned also yesterday by Tendor, uh, Tenzin Dorji, who's I think is watching us on Facebook. I saw one of his comments also there. He also reminded that you know Tibetans in Tibet can hardly get a passport. It's uh, it's very very difficult for them to get a passport. So um, it's difficult to get inside Tibet, and it's almost impossible to get out of Tibet for Tibetans. That's the reality. Just like the Uyghurs. Uh, another question here from Lundup Toshishar, and uh, this question is, how successful has the CCP been after more than 60 years in uh, wiping out Tibetan language and culture in Tibet? What's your opinion of that? And uh, will Tibetans in Tibet be able to tackle this gigantic challenge in the future? Uh, kind of a state of where things are after, after more than 60 years of Chinese rule. This is a very interesting question, and I would like to respond with a nuanced response. Already in my, uh, already 10 years ago, I argued that Chinese minority policy aims to preserve an outer shell, an outer appearance of colorful, of colorful minority culture and a degree of minority language and an outer performance of minority spirituality but hollowing out the inside that's behind it. Minorities are to be assimilated on the inside. There's a direct attack on the spirituality, uh, on, on the language and on the culture. But there are accepted ways of minority expression, uh, Tibetans, Uyghurs, etc. Although for Uyghurs, that's, <laughs> for Uyghurs, even the outer shell is under serious attack. That's a whole, uh, Xinjiang is a whole new story. But I think Tibet, Still broadly falls under the um, description that a lot of the outer thing, like a pseudo new Tibetan architect architecture, so you now have new housing developments. So Tibetan livelihoods are being changed, possibly even, but they're being resettled in houses that have some sort of pseudo new Tibetan um, de decoration items, which can look pretty if you like it. You know, uh, temples are being repainted. Things look, things look beautiful, new, modernized, uh, colorful, uh, dancing, you know, dancing and music, tourism, etc. But even tourism is a form of colonialism. So you have a colonial empire that hollows out a lot of the interior uh, and, 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 and uh, renovates the outside, makes the outside look really shiny and nice. Uh, you know, and publishes some Tibetan Buddhist books and all that. So it's we have to we have to understand how this works. And the Tibetan language still continues to be taught. You still have Tibetan language education also in the TAR, but it's increasingly phased out, right? Uh, it's increasingly under attack on the secondary level, certainly at university level, etc. So that is the situation. This this very um, pointed hollowing out. And now I think that the latest attack on traditional livelihoods, such as nomadism, pastoralism, uh, farming, again, is, I think, going to come with profound loss and change of culture. Of course, to some extent, culture change is normal, right? Modernization is normal. We have to be careful. This probably leads to higher income. 
this probably makes Tibetans earn more money. And some Tibetans may love it. They think it's wonderful. Some Tibetans like learning Chinese and going to Eastern Chinese provinces and they get new opportunity. But the big picture is that there is a very sophisticated attack on core aspects of minority culture and spirituality, that especially those ones that the party thinks are a threat. We are uh, running close to the, uh, the end of the program, but I'd like to see if we can get to a couple more questions real quick. Um, there's a question on Facebook from Pema Seldon. Is the labor transfer program implemented in Tibetan areas outside the TAR? Um, the answer is, I think so. And labor training and transfer is actually implemented in all lesser development areas of China, all areas in Chinese provinces everywhere, almost every, it's almost universal, uh, which was actually pointed out by a uh, Chinese state media article att attacking my work. Uh, I'm, I'm well aware of the fact. <laughs> um, but the question is, what does it look like, right? How do they do it? How is it integrated? What are the outcomes? How coercive is it? Is there military drill? Is there coercion? Is, there, uh, is this part of an elaborate security apparatus? And uh, so I'm pretty sure that at least part of this is being implemented in other Tibetan areas in China, but it's subject to further research to see how co what indicators of coercion do we see? What indicate like what what red flags do we come across as we so we have to look at it carefully. And uh, one last question here before we finally stop, and this is a uh, more of a personal question. How did you arrive at Tibet Studies, Adrian, and what sparked your interest? Uh, have you been able to travel Tibet, to Tibet and spend any time there? Um, I have not recently traveled to China. That's far too dangerous for me. Also, fieldwork in the Tibet Autonomous Region is a huge problem. I um, thankfully was able to conduct extensive fieldwork uh, during my PhD research in Tibetan regions, which was sparked by a, a real interest in minority education, and the Tibetans were uh, a particularly pertinent uh, case of Tibetan education, minority education, uh, you know, fully developed um, from different parts of China, uh, you know, from primary level to tertiary level. And uh, there was also a lot of debate about it. It was a very fertile study of research and also then the connection with the employment. So um, I think this was a time in history where there was relative freedom of uh, fieldwork. I think these times are over. Of course, I have become now um, very high profile, uh, which I find very uh, unfortunate. I, um, Chinese government uh, claims that I am anti-China, that I hate China, etc. Um, I find that very hurtful, actually, uh, because it's not true, um, even though I'm concerned about aspects of what China does. But I think um, China is a very fascinating country, and the Chinese people are uh, have a very, well, I, I don't want to peddle stereotypes, but anyway. Um, I think um, there's always that personal level, but unfortunately, the study of China for more and more of us academics has become something that is no longer possible on a personal level. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's very tough to hear that, obviously, but we're all very grateful to you for this report and for bringing what's happening now in Tibet with this uh, coercive labor program to the attention of the wider world. And uh, we're really grateful to you um, for being here with us as well, because we know that you've obviously been getting a lot of media requests and a lot of attention for this report. So 
Thank you for everything you're doing and thank you for being with us uh, here this week on Tibet Talks. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Adrian. Bye-bye. Thank you. So, thank you all to uh, all of you who are watching and listening from home. Uh, we know that this is a historically difficult time for the entire world, but we're hopeful that this conversation um, inspired you to take positive action for the Tibetan people. We will be back with another episode of Tibet Talks next week, featuring Dr. Stefan Reichstaffen, an author, holistic physician, co-founder of the Omega Institute, and founder of the retreat center, Blue Spirit in Costa Rica. You don't want to miss it, and we hope you'll join us for that. To learn more, please visit safetibet.org slash live, or listen to our new Tibet Talks podcast. We have a podcast now at safetibet.org slash pod. See you again next week. Until then, to paraphrase Professor Tenzin Dorji, our first ever guest on Tibet Talks, Stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org slash support. Thank you and see you next time on Tibet Talks.